Heavenly Father, thank you for gathering us here together at this time in your house that we can worship you. We ask that you would open our hearts to hear your word and that you would bless this message and everyone who hears it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 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 Thank you, brother. You all may be seated. All right. Well, I hope that you all have been enjoying this series of Galatians. As I said, I've been behind on where I wanted to be on things, even mentally, at least a week at a time. And in my mind, we were going to have started Galatians in October and be pushing to the end of it towards Christmas season. And that ended up not being the case. But what we're doing is we're just going to continue to press forward and preach this book verse by verse, all the while trying to keep the overall narrative and picture that scripture gives us. And the title of the series has been Rebuking Legalism. Paul has been laying out his case that believers in Christ are supposed to look to Jesus and to his finished work on the cross and not to the law, not to telling new Gentile believers that they had to be Jewish. I have stubbornly resigned myself this morning against my will into splitting this into two different messages. So maybe that'll help me slow down a little bit and realize I'm not going to have to be panicked to get it all in and to keep us over time. But throughout about the next 40 minutes, I do pray that you would give your attention to the scriptures this morning. Pray that the Lord will help me as I speak. Pay attention the best that you can. It's not about me, but the word of God is alive. It's powerful. It's more powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. And it will bless you if you will listen this morning. In way of introduction, we consider the apostles of the Lord Jesus Christ. When the Lord came to die for our sins, he said that he was here to begin his church. He said, upon this rock, speaking of himself, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. In one place in the New Testament, it says that Christ, as the foundation of the church, then began to build and he gave the apostles which was a very limited office for a limited amount of time. In order to be an apostle, you had to meet a strict set of qualifications whereby you could claim to be an apostle. You had to see the Lord Jesus Christ himself, see him in his resurrected body and have received your ministry from him. So if any current day minister claims to be an apostle, we do not believe that is biblical because the apostles were given for the first century church, but then upon the foundation of Christ and the apostles were given pastors, sometimes called elders or overseers or bishop to lead in the New Testament church. The apostles then had a special and unique ministry during that moment in time where they were to take what the Lord had given them and begin to preach the gospel. So too, in the first century church, the scripture was not completed. The Old Testament was given, but the book of Galatians is believed by many to be the first book of the New Testament, or at least the first one that the apostle Paul wrote, and it was written in 47 AD. So you had a buffer of time where the scripture was not fully given, so the apostles were speaking from the Lord and for the Lord and were prophesying, and God gave them sign gifts and miracles to validate the message that they were giving. However, however, over time, as the scriptures were given through the apostles to the church, we now have that which is perfect. We now have the word of God completed. We don't need an apostle here to give us new revelation from the Lord. And we really don't even need the miracles to validate what they are saying because the Holy Spirit has validated the message 
throughout the word of God. But all the way till today, these apostles are famous. Many of you here this morning are either named after an apostle or have the name of an apostle. I'm losing track of the amount of James and Andrews that we have running around the church. But these apostles in the first century church were famous. They were popular. They were celebrities, if you will. When they traveled to a new town to preach the gospel where they had not yet been, they would say, that's one of the apostles. That's one of the men who walked with Christ. They were there when he fed the 5,000. They were there when he raised the dead. They saw his glorified body. They received the doctrine of salvation in the church directly from the Lord. And so the apostles were reverenced. And that's only good. That's only right. Men who serve the Lord, women who have done great things for God, it's appropriate that we give honor to whom honor is due. But though the apostles were famous men, they were still men. They were still in the flesh. They still had to tell people, don't worship me, worship the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm just his messenger. And the best of men are still just men. There's only one man who ever put on flesh and lived an entire life, lived and died without sinning one time. And that's the Lord Jesus Christ, because he was more than just a man. He was the God man. He was God incarnate in the flesh. He became he was God before the world began. But he became a man when he took upon the form of a little baby in the manger. He never sinned. Other than that, no one is sinless. Whoever led you to the Lord was a sinner and full of flaws. Whoever has influenced you for the word of God and preached to you is a sinner that is flawed. Your pastor this morning is a sinner and has a lot of flaws. And if you're around here long enough, I'll probably let you down because we all let each other down eventually. So then the trick is to look to Christ and to keep our eyes on him. I'm getting a blinking light here. Just check if you can, best you can, that the live stream is up. And if we go down, then we'll have the audio preserved for later. So this morning, our text focuses on one of the apostles, perhaps the most famous apostle next to Paul, and that is a man named Peter. The first half of the book of Acts focuses around Peter and his preaching. The second half of the book of Acts settles around Paul and his call and his preaching. These two men who are polar opposites in many different ways were given as the two main apostles to go carry forth the gospel. One was a fisherman named Peter. He had a bent to make mistakes, to say the wrong thing, and to be in need of repentance quite often. Paul was polished. Paul was educated. Paul could speak multiple languages. So God said, I'm going to take Peter and make you the apostle to the Jews, and I'm going to take Paul and make him the apostle to the Gentiles. I was talking with James Genero after the service last Sunday morning, and he was saying it's almost comical that God took Peter, who was the rough fisherman, and gave him to the Jews who were so rigid about the law. Because Paul was educated. He could speak all these different languages. He was a Pharisee of the Pharisees. But God said, Paul, I'm going to take you, the Pharisee of the Pharisees, and send you to the Gentile nation so that you may witness to them. Because he could speak the different languages. He was trained in philosophy and so on and so forth so that he was able to meet their arguments where they were in that Greco-Roman culture and point them to Christ. And the Lord said to the Jews, you don't need the Pharisee of the Pharisees. I'll give you the bumbling fisherman 
and he'll be your apostle because I'm going to teach him through his thick, hard head that the focus needs to not be on the law, but on Christ. And he's going to teach you the same things. We find Peter making his entrance into the New Testament before we do Paul. When you string together the narrative of the Gospels, we see that John the Baptist was preaching and proclaiming the Messiah is to come. Repent. Jesus is about to show up. And it led him to eventually saying to the crowd that was gathered around as he pointed to Christ, behold, the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. The Bible tells us that a man named Andrew heard John the Baptist preaching when he proclaimed that the Messiah was there. And then Andrew went to tell Peter, we found the Messiah. He brought Peter to Jesus to hear his message. And then a short while later, as Andrew and Peter were out fishing on the water, which was their profession, they were professional fishermen. Jesus came by and he called out and he said, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. And the Lord has a right to call us away from our dreams, our plans, our vocations to something better. And Jesus said, you're going to do something a whole lot better with your life than catching fish. You're going to fish for souls and you're going to tell them about me and tell them how they can be saved. Jesus took Peter, whose name at that point was Simon, and changed his name to Cephas. Cephas is the Aramaic and Peter is the Greek word. They both mean a rock or a small stone. Peter had a pattern. It was being aggressive. It was wanting to follow the Lord with all of his heart, mind, and soul. Jumping out and doing what other people would not do. Saying what they would not say. Accomplishing things for the Lord. But also making the mistakes that come from being aggressive and always putting yourself out there. Jesus came to the disciples in the middle of the storm walking on water. And Peter looked out and said, Lord, bid me that I come walk on the water. None of the other apostles said that. I don't know if I would have said that if it would even have occurred to me. Here comes Jesus walking on the water. It's an amazing, it's a miracle. But Peter said, hey, let me do it too. And rather than rebuking him, Jesus said, come on, Peter, walk on the water with me. And he did. And then he got out on the water walking and he said, I wonder how I'm doing this. And he looked away from Jesus and down on his feet and realized I'm not doing this. And he began to sink and had to reach his hand up to the Lord. And the Lord forgave him and pulled him up out of the water. At one point, Jesus was trying to tell his disciples what was coming. You want to be my disciple? You want to be my follower? It's not always going to be easy. You see, God has a redemptive plan. And before sometime off in the future, I fulfill all of the Old Testament prophecies about sitting and ruling and reigning on the throne in Jerusalem. I am going to die for your sins. And he said he began to teach his disciples how he was going to be crucified and how he was going to be in the grave three days and three nights. And then he was going to raise again. And the scripture says Peter took Jesus aside and, quote, began to rebuke him. You see, God, you've got something wrong. Let me straighten you out, Peter said. To which the Lord turned to Peter and lovingly but firmly said, Get thee behind me, Satan, for thou savorest the things that be of man and not the things of God. Someone said, well, the Catholic Church claims that Peter is the first pope. And then someone else said, well, the Lord also said, Get thee behind me, Satan. Peter was not a pope, neither was he the devil, but he was speaking in that moment apart from the will of God. He was speaking from his flesh. He was speaking what he wanted to happen and tried to correct his Lord and Savior. 
While he also did many things that were wrong, the Lord also loved him and was always very patient with this wild, ambitious fisherman. After saying, get thee behind me, Satan, he said to him, but I have prayed for thee that thy faith fail not. And when thou art converted, thou shalt strengthen thy brethren. You see, the Lord Christ himself went to prayer to the father and he said, father, would you help Peter? Would you help his faith not to fail? Would you help him to be strengthened so that he can feed my sheep and take care of the church after I'm come home to you? Peter got a lot wrong, but he also got a lot right. They came to Jesus and said, some are saying that you're John the Baptist. Some say you're Elijah. Some say you're another prophet that's incarnate. And Jesus said, whom do you say that I am? Peter said, thou art the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus said, blessed art thou, Peter, for flesh and blood has not revealed it to you. But my father, which is in heaven, has revealed it to you. And then Jesus went on to say in that same chapter, I believe, Thou art Peter, meaning a small stone. And then Jesus said, and upon this rock, speaking of himself, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. You see, Jesus himself was the foundation, but then he took little stones like Peter and put it upon the foundation of himself and said, if you will do what I've commanded you to do, if you're within my authority, then I bless what you are doing and I sanction it and you will be able to have victory. And the church will be established. At one point in John chapter 6, it says that the multitudes saw that it was going to be difficult to follow Jesus. And they began to turn back and to go away and to abandon the Lord and to become disillusioned with him and his message. And Jesus turned to the twelve and he said, will you also go away? And Peter again was the one that spoke up and he said, Lord, to whom else would we go? Thou alone hast the words of life. And this morning, it may seem tempting to turn away from the Lord, to turn away from the church, to go our own way. But I say the same things to where else would we go? What are we going to do with the life that we have left when in our hearts and souls we know that the word of God is true? Are we going to live our, our years, our, our candle that's flickering out by the minute for self, looking for philosophy, looking for the ways of man? There's nowhere else to go, church, this morning. We need to stay with our Savior as Peter did. Jesus, again, as he was about to be arrested, began to try to prepare his disciples. And he said, all of you shall be offended because of me this night. Jesus said at the last supper, knowing what was to come as the Old Testament prophesied, smite the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. Well, they came to smite the good shepherd, the Lord Jesus Christ, and took him away and the sheep scattered everywhere. They ran. They were afraid. But again, guess who spoke up? Peter, Peter said with his chest puffed out in pride from a heart that probably thought he was saying the right thing. He said, though all men shall be offended, yet will I never be offended. Famous last words saying things that we should be more careful about saying. Jesus looked at Peter and said, not only will you be offended, but I prophesy that before the cock crows the next morning to signify dawn, you will deny that you even know my name three different times. Peter again chafed against the words of the Lord that he loved. And he said, though I die with thee, yet will I not deny thee. Well, the minutes quickly ticked by and the hours came just a brief while later after the time of prayer in the garden 
They came to arrest the Lord Jesus Christ. The Roman soldiers showed up. Jesus went forth to meet them. And guess who spoke up? Peter, you're right. And Peter said, here we go. The war has begun. Uh, everything Jesus said he was mixed up about. Let me take my sword. It's me against everybody. And Peter drew a sword and swung it at one of the Roman soldiers, a man named Malchus. And the scripture says he cut off his ear. I don't think Peter was so good with the sword. He aimed for the ear. I think he was going for a little bit lower than the ear. But as the man moved his head, the ear is all that was caught. Jesus looked at Peter, shook his head, but patient as always, and said, Peter, don't you know? Do you really think I need you to save me right now? Don't you know that I could call to my father and in one second he would send 10,000 angels and the wrath of God would wax white hot and the entire world would be vaporized? Do you think I need you and your little sword to protect me right now? And he put the ear back on the soldier. One more miracle before he went to the cross. He healed the Malchus's ear. And he looked at Peter and he said, Those that take the sword and live with the sword shall die thereby. The kingdom of God is not established by violence. Get out of my way and let me go die for your sins so that I can save your soul. Well, the disciples scattered just like Jesus said. But Peter, perhaps persisting in some of his stubbornness, said, I want to see what's going to happen. I think John followed, but Peter followed behind. Yes, the denial of Peter was coming, but Peter was the one who was trying to say, well, let me get as close as I can. Let me see what will happen. Peter was evidently in some type of a courtyard outside of where they were holding Jesus while he was being sent back and forth and waiting to be seen by all of the different people that saw him that night, such as Pilate. And it was a cold night, and Peter sat by the fire and warmed his hands. And a woman came by, and she said, hey... I've seen you before. You're with Jesus. You're one of the rebels. And Peter, out of fear, said, I'm not one of them. I don't even know who that is. The second time, someone said, no, I'm pretty sure you're, you're one of those Jesus people. No, I'm not. And the third time, they said, I know you're a follower of Jesus. You even talk like one of them. I can tell. Peter got angry, and he cursed. And he said, I told you. I never even met that man named Jesus. And scripture, which is so dramatic. Look, if the Bible's boring to you this morning, it may be because you don't have the Spirit of God speaking it to you. It may be because you're, you're not devoted enough to put out worldly interests so that it can be. Or maybe the preacher makes it boring because that happens a lot of the time. But preaching, Bible study, reading should not be boring because the Bible is not a boring book. And at that very moment, the rooster began to crow. And Luke's gospel says that at that very moment, when the rooster began to crow, right after Peter boldly proclaimed, I don't know who Jesus is, and cursed and denied his Savior, it says, and the Lord turned and looked upon Peter. Evidently, Jesus was right inside of the court. Evidently, he was on the other side of a wall with a window, or maybe some have imagined he was being led of, of, by the soldiers right at that moment where there was an opening. But however it happened, he denied he knew Jesus. The rooster began to crow, and he turned, and the Lord himself looked Peter right in the eyeballs. They say looks can kill. Um, a lot can be communicated. But disappointment from a spouse, from a parent, from a coach... Sometimes to receive the look from your parents that you've disappointed them can cut you in your heart more than punishment or words they would say. And I don't know what the eyes of Jesus were like, 
But I know he locked eyes with Peter, and I know that a burning thousand swords pierced directly through the heart of Peter, and he remembered his words of pride. He remembered, I'll never deny you. He remembered, I'm ready to die before I deny that I know you. And he said, Lord, you've got it wrong. I won't deny you before the rooster crows. And the scripture says that Peter, filled with shame and embarrassment, ran out and he wept bitterly. You have to read between the lines a little bit in the Gospels, but apparently Peter was so disoriented by this betrayal of the Lord that he went and he felt worthless and he felt down and he said, I'm going fishing. Going back to my old life, the old way, the Lord's not going to use me anymore. But one of the Gospels records that when the ladies came to the tomb where Jesus was, the Lord said, go tell my disciples and Peter that I'm risen from the dead and I'm coming to see them. He said, why did Jesus say my disciples and Peter? Was he saying Peter is no longer qualified to be my disciple? No, I think he said, especially Peter, tell him I'm coming to see him. Because he may think it's over, but I'm not done with him yet. I've got a lot for him to do, and I'm going to use his life. Jesus came to the seashore and called them back, and, and skipping over some of the details of the drama, Peter sat there in the silence as Jesus gave him a piece of fish. He said, Peter, do you love me? Yes, Lord, I love you. Feed my sheep. Do you love me? Feed my sheep. Do you love me? Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Then go and feed my sheep. And Peter, who was a flipper and a flopper and up and down and all over the place in the book of Acts, appears a bit more grounded, a bit more of a pillar of that first century church preaching the gospel and forgiven and restored by Christ on the day of Pentecost when the comforter was come in fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecy and the promises of the Lord. It wasn't James, John, or Andrew, but it was Peter who stood up and began to preach. And as he preached, the Holy Spirit descended and through the miracle of tongues, people heard the gospel in their own language and they believed. And in one day, 3,000 people were saved, baptized, and added to the church. And through that, no doubt, Peter became a legend to this first century church. The apostle who walked with Jesus. The one who denied him yet was redeemed. The one who preached on Pentecost. The apostle to the Jews. This is Peter. Peter was a good man. But he was still Peter. He was still a man. He was still flawed. And Galatians records yet another colossal mistake he made that Paul had to get up in his face in front of everybody and rebuke him for. We're in the middle of Galatians chapter 2 and at the end of the, the message last week we talked about how the apostles had united against, uh, against legalism and how when Paul finally after 17 years came to Jerusalem for an extended stay to meet the other apostles, the Judaizers came around and demanded that Paul's fellow servant Titus be circumcised. He was a Greek. He wasn't raised under the Jewish law. And they came around demanding to know, are you teaching circumcision as necessary? Have you told Titus that he has to be circumcised? And the apostles had to unite and pulse again and push against that and say, stop trying to add to the gospel. Stop trying to make the new Gentile believers Jewish. The blood of Jesus is sufficient. They don't need your tradition. Point them to the cross. Point them to the word. Point them to Christ. Don't point them to the Jewish rites and rituals. Paul says we did not submit to them, not even for an hour. And as the apostles were bold to guard the doctrine, so too the pastors and overseers of the church must guard the doctrine and the teaching. 
There's no place for timidness or for being afraid when it comes to the matter of doctrine. Because whatever you want to say about Paul, he sure was not timid. He sure was willing to call it out and to name people by names and to guard the doctrine and to guard the truth. And when he told Timothy and Titus to take the oversight of the flock where they were and to feed them, he told them, correct the error, set things in order, correct this doctrine and that doctrine. So too, it is the pastor's job to be welcoming of everyone, but to be kind and to be loving, but to have a backbone of steel that never bends one inch when it comes to the truth of what's being taught from the pulpit, of what's being discussed in the small Bible study groups or the class curriculum or whatever it is. I wouldn't take a pastorate without it being my responsibility to control what comes across the pulpit and what is taught in the curriculums. And if it was a situation where it was a large church that required a team of pastors, I wouldn't participate unless it was the responsibility of the pastors of the church to guard what was being taught. Charles Spurgeon was correcting and speaking negatively of a a church and a denomination in his era where all that they did was every Sunday morning, everybody took turns talking and they all got equal turns to say whatever they wanted to say. And he said, as inevitably is the case, those with the least to say will do most of the talking. And while it's a good thing to have a group that discusses things, and we're doing more of that than we've ever done, and it's good for our church, there has to be a leader. There has to be somebody who says, this is where we stand. And if you disagree, that's okay. But you can't sit there and let false doctrine be circulated without being willing to correct it. And from what I see in scripture is not that there is a board of people who run the church, but rather it's the ordained pastors who are given the responsibility to say you are responsible not to control everybody's lives, but to be responsible to oversee the church. And first and foremost in the list of duties that come in taking the oversight of the flock of God is to watch what's being taught and watch what's being fed and not allow people to teach something that runs contrary to the word of God. So then when I look at people who I ask to speak for me, there's two things that I find extremely important. It's the content and it's the spirit in which the content is delivered because both of them matter greatly. Someone who speaks the truth but does it out of a legalistic heart that does not love people can do damage to the church as much as someone who lovingly gives false doctrine. So then we've established in the scripture and in the New Testament, there's two kinds of legalism. Both are found in Acts 15. One says you have to keep the law. You have to be circumcised or you can't be saved. The other one says, well, yes, we believe. Yes, Jesus is savior, but it's still needful for you to keep the law of Moses. It's still needful for you to require circumcision. It's still necessary for you to keep my list of rules that aren't clearly found in scripture or else you're not as spiritual as me. That's the second kind of legalism. And last week we gave a lot of examples of that. And like the, the men who, who preach without a balanced spirit and a heart of love and the ones we talked about, like who would go around and say, no, I have to correct the ladies in the church because they're wearing the wrong kind of shoes or their long hair isn't long enough or their long dress isn't long enough or that correct and rebuke strangers who walk in for the way that they're dressed without even giving them an opportunity to hear the gospel. I'm not denying that those men are saved, but they very well may be saved and know the Lord but they have a legalistic heart that is more focused on the external than on the clearly taught truths of the word of God and the heart of the gospel. 
And while Jesus and Paul and every other New Testament preacher did call out sin and did confront people by name, they still had a heart of love that was the heart of a shepherd to lay down their lives and die for people, not demand to be served by people. And there's a great danger, as we said last week, in searching scripture with the lens of looking for a rule. And some people can become imbalanced because they get so excited about, I found this one verse that I think means this, and that means that I made a new rule. If you're not seeing it the way I am and keeping the rule the way that I am, then you're not as spiritual as me and you're not, you're not as right with God as, with God as I am. And I think there's people who are passionate about the truth and who love the Lord and who love the word of God. But they wouldn't make a very good pastor or leader because they don't have the heart of a shepherd to pair that compassionate love for people along with their love for the truth. But above all, the simplest way of explaining it is we need to be taught and grounded in scripture interpretation so that when we apply hermeneutics to scripture, when we do the exegesis of the passage, which means to pull out of, we learn to differentiate where is the Bible clearly teaching this as a command and where is it giving a principle? And maybe the principle, it's going to be up to each and every one of us to figure out what rules we will live by. If the Bible clearly teaches it, we must clearly teach it. But if it's not given in the Bible as a rule for all, we fall into legalism if we're requiring it of other people. Paul said in Galatians 2, 6, that God is not a respecter of persons. God doesn't love some people and treat them better because of where they're from, what their skin color is, or how much money they make. And God says we should not be either. Galatians 2, 7, but contrarywise, when they saw that the gospel of the uncircumcision was committed unto me, as the gospel of the circumcision was unto Peter. For he that wrought effectually in Peter to the apostleship of the circumcision, the same was mighty in me toward the Gentiles. So as we said, here's where scripture tell us, tells us Peter was given to the Jews and Paul was given to the Gentiles. And then it says that James, Cephas, who is Peter and John, they perceived the grace that was given to Paul and to Barnabas. They gave them the right hands of fellowship and said, the Lord be with you. You go to the heathen people who don't know God and we'll keep going to the Jews and we'll all preach the same gospel to everyone. And, and, and it, there's such a beautiful thing about cooperation that we see in the New Testament where they look to other servants of the Lord and said, your calling is here. Your place is there. Your style is different than mine, but you're preaching the gospel. So we give you the right hand of fellowship to signify that it's really about the Lord in us that does the work. It's not about the personalities that carry it out. And Paul rebuked that sharply. The church at Corinth was split into factions and into cliques. And what was dividing them was some said, my favorite preacher's Paul. Mine's Peter. Mine's Apollos. And Paul said, only Jesus died for you. Only Jesus rose again for you. We're baptized not in the name of Paul, of Cephas, or of Apollos, but in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And this is a great principle from Scripture to tell us that as we look at people around us who are serving the Lord and preaching the gospel, though they may even be of a different denomination or have a different style in the way that they carry things out, even if we have differences and disagreements, if they're preaching that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in the blood of Christ alone, then we're supposed to give them the right hand of fellowship and say, praise the Lord. We rejoice that you are preaching the gospel I exchanged emails one time, a couple of them with a pastor who said, I don't fellowship with too many people because I'm too old fashioned for them. 
And so I don't know how old-fashioned I am because I don't know what metric people are using to define that. I said, I don't know how old-fashioned I am, but I'll be a friend to anybody who's preaching the gospel and say, the Lord be with you. I rejoice. Maybe we have some differences where we wouldn't be yoked up in the exact same way. But if you're serving the Lord over here and preaching Jesus is the only way to heaven, then I'm going to say, praise the Lord and rejoice because that's what Paul said to do. That if the gospel is being proclaimed, we are to rejoice and to love each other. We should be more known more for our love than for our division, though the division is sometimes necessary. Paul was saying, I have the same gospel as the other ten apostles, uh, other 11 apostles, but I didn't get it from them. It was three years before I ever met Peter or James. It was 17 years before I spent a lot of time with them. We're all preaching the gospel, but I promise you, I'm not just their disciple as some are accusing me of. I got my gospel from the Lord directly, and that's why I have my authority. I'm independent from the other apostles. I even rebuked one of them once. So thus he includes this example of him rebuking Peter to further prove that he was independent and serving the Lord on his own. Galatians 2 in verse number 10, only they would, the other apostles said to Peter and I'm sorry, said to Paul and Barnabas, would you please remember the poor? Paul says the same, which I was eager to do. I was forward to do. As we said last week, there was a very specific reason they asked him to remember the poor. They were speaking about the Jews in Jerusalem who had come to Christ. And because they were now saved and professing to be Christians, they were being persecuted with a heavy hand. They were being thrown in prison. They were being beaten. They were not being allowed to return to their homes or their businesses for fear of their lives. They scattered. And Paul himself had been involved in persecuting the church. He was part of the reason they had to flee. So Paul said, yes, I'm eager to help remember them. And everywhere that Paul went, we find in record of, all, of several of his epistles, he went and preached the gospel there. And he said to the churches of all these different regions, would you pray about taking up an offering for the Jews in Jerusalem who are being persecuted? And we'll get the collection, we'll send it to them, and they will know that the Gentiles love them and we will support them. Not because they're unwilling to work, not because they're lazy, but because they had to flee their businesses and their homes and their way of life because they were persecuted for the cause of Christ. But there was a wonderful reason that here in verse 10, they were wanting the Gentiles to cooperate in giving an offering to the Jews. It's because there was such a danger in that first century of there being two churches or three or four different New Testament churches. One of the Jews who got saved and another of the Gentiles in each and every region. And the reasons for that were immense. There was tension between the Jews and the Gentiles. There was a hesitancy from the Jews to give up their traditions. And of course there would have been. Because for 4,000 years, they've been taught this is the way you're supposed to live in order to be right with God. Much of it came from the scripture itself. Other of it was added to the scripture through the Mishnah, the Midrash, and the Torah. But they were clinging to it. And for Paul to tell them, you're not under the law, but under grace was this bombshell that went off. Where they would be conditioned to treat that as heresy. What do you mean move away from the Old Testament law? God gave it to us. So they said, let's have the Gentiles participate in giving to help the Jews. And let's teach the Jews, don't go try to make the Gentile church a Jewish nation. We're all one in Christ. There's one local New Testament church 
There's not supposed to be a church for one skin color that forbids other people to come into it. As at this point, it's going to be next week when we start point number one. The examples of that have been shameful and all throughout history in the New Testament and church history and in the United States and in the Southern United States where people said, yeah, we love the people of a different skin color. Just tell them to keep to themselves. Just let them know they're not welcome to come in our church, but they can have their own. God rebuked that. Paul rebuked it. Christ said there's one church. It doesn't matter the skin color or the background. We're all one in the blood of Jesus Christ. We're all supposed to give the right hand of fellowship to other believers. Galatians 2.11 But when Peter was come to Antioch, I withstood him to the face because he was to be blamed. That's verse 1 of our four verses we're using for our text this morning that we're barely going to scratch the surface because there's so much there in these four simple verses. We'll begin by saying it was in Antioch where Peter was come to. It was in Antioch. And this fits so much with point number one that to the great shock of the crowd, we're going to stop preaching before 12 o'clock and say in order to get the full picture of the message, you're going to have to come back or access it later if you're traveling for Thanksgiving. We'll preserve the, the recording to the best of our ability, the live stream that is continuing to give us fits. But let's take this thought home with us this morning that the Lord can use any of us, but no one is against being confronted when they are in error. And all of us should be careful of loving some people differently or treating them differently because of how much money they can give or because of where they're from. And as we'll talk about next week in a world where there is so much racial strife and always has been, there's one great hope that brings unity. There's one great example that's supposed to be a shining light to the rest of the world as to how we can get along in harmony. And that is the New Testament church of the Lord Jesus Christ. And point number one is that Paul was willing to confront Peter. Number two, the reason that Paul confronted him is that Peter himself was guilty of racism. And we'll talk about that next week because I don't know what else to do. Unless somebody wants to get chicken and we come back and preach another hour. No, okay, we'll hold it till next week. Let's bow for prayer. Heavenly Father, I know we're starting and stopping a lot with the book of Galatians and with the message this morning, but I pray that you would take these themes that we haven't fully played out yet and yet still apply them to our heart. Help us be committed to loving and serving you, even if we've sinned and made mistakes, because you forgave Peter when he sinned and when he made mistakes. Help us be humble, not presumptuous. Help us repent when we are wrong. Help us be willing to confront sin when it's there, to respond to rebuke when it comes, and to look at all people in our world, and especially among the church, and say, God, by your grace at this place, if I have anything to do with it, may we all say there will be no schism in the body because we're from different countries, races, backgrounds, or have different skin colors or are from a different class. Thank you, Father, that that's one wonderful thing that we can rejoice in this morning, that the level of the, the foot of the cross, the ground is level. Thank you that we've received Christ as our Savior. Thank you that as we gather for our celebrations this week with family and friends, we can truly have a heart of thanksgiving to the Lord for what you've done for us. Thank you that you were willing to forgive men like Peter and use them greatly. 
And thank you, Father, that you're willing to forgive people like us and use us as well. Let's keep our heads bowed and eyes closed. Let's continue in a moment of prayer. Thank you.